expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Oh, hi, Alice. Hi, Rick. Where's Ralph? Oh, he's not home yet. Oh, well, Norton just called me, and he told me to tell Ralph that he might be a little late for bowling tonight. On his way home from work, he has to stop in at the television store. We're getting a new set. You are? Mm -hmm. What's the matter with the old one? Oh, we've had an awful lot of trouble with it, Alice. So yesterday, I called in the television repairman and said it just isn't worth fixing. Gee. Here you are getting your second set. We haven't even had our first one yet. Oh, I wish Ralph would get me a television. I begged him, Trixie, for a set. I pleaded with him. Alice, you're never going to get anything out of Ralph by begging. I just love to see us beg. Whenever I want to get something out of Ed, I just use the old pipe and slippers routine. What's that? Well, when Ed gets home from work, I bring him his pipe and his slippers, and I wait on him, and I flatter him, and I make him real comfortable. Then, when he's in a good mood, I spring it on him. And Alice, it never fails. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 27, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Paul Lambert. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today. If you didn't notice anything unusual about our opening today, well, you're a first-time listener then. But if you notice something unusual, you're a regular listener, and welcome back. Robert Vaughn is not with us today, as he has other obligations for this weekend next, but we'll return the week following. Joining me in the studio today is someone who's been a guest on the show before. He's wearing kind of two hats today. But uh, it is Paul Lambert. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Bill. You've been a guest on the show before. You are an author, a former teacher. Um, basically, you're a translator. That's, That's what right. you do for a living. And you will soon be our Euro correspondent for Just Right. You're going to give us a little bit of a European flavor on the show. Give, give no, us I, a hint of what's to come in North America, eh? I look forward. Yeah. Do you look prophetic. forward to what's to come in North well, I America? Forward, <laughs> I look forward to filling those, uh, that task. Yes, Paul previously appeared on uh, Just Right way back in July 2007 when we discussed uh, Sweden, a socialist paradise, which is where you live. That's still lived there. And you still live there. You're in Canada on a visit right now. You'll be returning a couple days. Saturday. Saturday, Saturday already. Yep. And um, when you when you were on the show last, we talked about uh, Sweden, the socialist paradise, and a lot of the uh, misconception, misconceptions that people have about the, the country you live in now. Um, we're going to carry on with a little bit of that theme for the first portion of our show today. But over the course of the show, we're going to be talking about a couple of issues that are Euro-centered, if we can put it that way. And the big one is, of course, um, you know, the popular misconceptions, I guess we could talk about the whole Arab-Israeli conflict and what's going on in the Mideast. And uh, you're a much closer observer. You've taken a look at it. You're by no means, you don't have any inside information or anything. No, that's uh, Which a big I point, noticed yes. was something you stressed. You're in the middle of uh, writing a book on this, which is uh, an editing process or something like yes, that. Yes, working now. with an editor. And yes. I've read your manuscript, and it's, it's going to be, it's a, I think it's a kind of an earth shaker. And, and you, you simplified so many things for me with regards to that. But we'll have to talk about that sure. later in the show. And, of course, at the end of the show, we want to talk about whether there could a actually ever be a solution to the whole Mideast conflict. And we'll hear from other opinions as well and some of the clips we brought with us. 
But first, it sounds like it's a little bit on the lighter side, but maybe it's not if you're... Oh, wasn't that first? No, not not to you. Certainly not. Uh, If you're wondering what that first clip was was about our opener this morning, um, Paul is unusual in his country of Sweden in that he does not own a television set, a normal television set. Now, that by itself is no big deal. I know fewer and fewer people who are opting for traditional TVs anyway, and... um, it would not present a problem in their lives. But for you, it did, because, of course, you live in the socialist paradise of Sweden. <laughs> and I got to tell you, 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 we talked a couple of months ago on the phone, and you told me what happened to you with regards to uh, the consequences of not owning a television. I was ready to get on a plane, hop to Sweden, organize a political campaign, and, <laughs> oh, and, and set right this grievous injustice, <laughs> eh? And, uh, yes, we're talking about television ownership and its local and legal consequence in the socialist paradise of Sweden. And I think that makes a great segue from your last appearance on the show in terms of uh, what's happening in Sweden. So, so um, before you tell us your story, I just want to know, well, what's the matter with you? Are you okay? Is everything all right in the household? You don't have a TV? <laughs> no, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. I've got so much to do. I mean, I have had uh, televisions in the past when I rented out rooms from old ladies, but now I live in my own place. and. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I had the time to watch television. I'm busy with my business. I'm doing other things, and I just, I don't. Well, to do like television. the rest of us, we watch TV while we're working. And no, no, I, I'm, I'm a big no. I'm a big radio freak. I listen to radio. I listen oh. to old time radio, and you can wash the dishes, you can iron the clothes, do all all these things. And you think about a television; it takes up more space than just the television. You have to arrange your furniture around it in such a way that everyone sitting down can see it. Yeah, but for some yeah. people that television is the jewel of the room that's the center yeah, piece and yeah. i'm not against television as a medium other people enjoy it that's fine but we my wife and i we just do not want one we're not interested in one it's funny you say that um you listen more to radio because yeah. i've i think i've said on the show before that i've been finding television the larger proportion of it is getting more like radio all the time it's talk show you don't almost you almost don't have to look at the screen you know unless you're watching drama basically that's almost you know, scripted drama, that kind of thing. But um, having said all that, okay, tell us your story. Uh, the way you told me the story, I, I started at first smiling, and then as it got going, I'm, going, I'm creeping out here. Well, What's it, going on? It's actually two stories. One okay. is about the television, and the other is really exposes just how third-worldish the legal system can be in European countries. And I'll point out it's not just in Sweden, but in virtually every European country. Just to own a television... To be legally legally to be entitled to own a television, you need to pay a license. And in Sweden, that's $400 a year. Now, I'll point out, that doesn't pay for your cable TV or pay channels or anything. That's just a fee you need to pay to the government. In other words, it's a fee for possession. It's possession a fee for of a possession. TV. Yes, it is. So your TV could be disconnected, it could be it in the basement. Any, if you own it, you have to pay. Yes, exactly. And what happens is, the thing is, there, there are two state-run television stations that don't allow any advertising. And your fee goes to pay to run those two stations, even though you might never watch them. They can be completely against... Now, Sweden's not unique in this oh, type no. of arrangement. Oh, no. England still does it. England, it's, yeah, England, it's even more strict in many ways. We might talk about that a bit later, but you have to understand mm-hmm. that. You know, when I, I told people this story at first, they thought, well, that's okay, because cable TV costs 400 So, Oh, no, if you want cable and all that, you have to pay extra for the private channels. You're just funding two state-run channels that are only on for 10 hours a day, they're incredibly boring, and it's all propaganda for the Social Democratic Party. And that's not just my evaluation. It's even other Social Democrats have said that, mm-hmm. yeah, this is this is our platform, and they get paid by everyone who has a television. 
Well, that's how social democracy spreads. They steal other people's money and they use their money to spread the Oh, I don't the blame message. them. That's, it works that okay, way. Okay, so yeah. tell us your story. That's well, what happened is it, if we don't pay, if you don't pay the television license at all, um, you're on a list of people who aren't paying and they send an inspector around to come knock on your door to ask if you have a television. So obviously you, yeah. you didn't pay. Oh, obviously we didn't pay and so we're on the list. What oh, happens? Did you ever receive a bill for such yeah, a well, thing? Yeah, they, well, they, they automatically send bills out and they say if you don't have a television then just ignore the bill oh. but then they do random checks and so the inspector came to the door knocking on the door it was my wife who answered and uh, this wiry looking fellow just said no first in an accusing tone he didn't just ask do you have a television he said oh we see you haven't paid the license for your television and you know mm-hmm. really accusing and my wife answered quite correctly said well we don't have one and he looked at her really strange said, are you sure said, uh, yes we don't have a television really yeah really and he said, okay, well, we'll cross you off the list. Now, this is important. He said, well, you'll cross us mm-hmm. off the list. Two weeks later, we get a letter from the TV license office saying that the inspector saw that we had a television receiver in our house, and if we didn't pay the fee within 15 days, they would report us to the police. So, of course, we didn't pay. We didn't have a television. They reported us to the police. And that's where it gets even more interesting. What happens eventually a couple of weeks after that... Yeah, now, you, yeah. Now, you're, now you're in criminal territory. Oh, yes, we are in criminal right. territory. And the, the way the police handle this, this is even worse than the TV story, they send a, a creepy letter to my wife and it said summons on the top, in Swedish, of course. Now, I'm not 100% sure, maybe some more legal experts at the university will understand this, but as I understand, the police are not authorized to send a summons. It's only the courts and the judges are allowed to send a summons. Mm-hmm. But we got this creepy letter, it said summons, no signature... No stamp, no reference to what law requires my wife to go down to the station. They said, we need you to come down to the station. So she went down to the station with me. To the police station, not the to, TV no, station. No, no, the police station. Oh, no, now it's no longer in the police, right. uh, the TV station's hands. We went down to the police station, and the, the policewoman there, she greeted us, and then she wanted to talk to my wife alone in the back room. and wouldn't say what it was about. And then we both protested and said, no, we're not, we're not just going into a back room. You know, my wife is not going to go into a back room. The police to be questioned. No lawyer. I'm not present. And you're not even saying what it's about. And the police got really upset with us and, uh, <laughs> and, and tried to tell us, oh, the law requires us to ask her all these questions in private. Of course, that wasn't, didn't mean we had to do anything. Mm-hmm. But after a bit of banter, it was clear that my wife didn't actually have to say anything. So she okay, we'll, we'll go back into the back room. And so the policewoman was talking at her, basically, because my wife didn't say a thing. And then the policewoman said, we find it really strange that your husband, you find it really strange that your husband uh, would, wouldn't want you to talk to us. Is it because he's beating you? We have to investigate why he reacted so badly. You know, perhaps he has to be investigated for domestic violence. Oh my and goodness. so now I'm under suspicion for domestic violence because we, we reacted so negatively to... You know, to my wife being questioned in this way. Being treated to public violence. (laughs) Oh, oh, basically. It was incredible. And uh, so... So that went on. It's a bit so funny wasn't, now. So wasn't it just a simple matter of come into my house and see if there's oh, a TV? that's a good question. No, they're not allowed to do that, even upon invitation. You, cannot, you can say, come take a look. They're not allowed into your house, even if you ask them. But what they can do is they can peek through your window from outside in the street. And now that's what apparently happened, is the charge is going to be dropped because apparently... <laughs> so he, so he peeping, was, Tomism peeping Tomism is, is, is okay for the, for the TV police. Now, what if your curtains were down or drawn? Was well, then, there some obligation on your part to raise them? <laughs> <laughs> no, then he wouldn't be able to do that. Then he wouldn't no, be able no, to. No, so, okay. But it turns out, oh, appara- apparently, if you, I believe his story, I don't really, and I'll tell you why in a minute. 
he was peeping through the wrong window. It was the neighbor's window because we live in a block of flats. Mm-hmm. So he was looking into another flat and that's... <laughs> and that's, that was his. That was his reason, and you have to remember these men are all paid on commission. That uh, they get a hundred Swedish crowns, about twenty dollars for every new, you know, every person they catch not paying, basically. And so there's a positive impetus to finding people who haven't paid. Sure. Yeah. And so you know, a reward system. And it also isn't that very cynical. Like the Swedish government in its TV law just simply expects. That they're going to be, everyone's going to be a lawbreaker. Or else they couldn't sus- sustain a system like that. He doesn't. He isn't paid a salary, but he's had that job apparently for seven years. So they count on people breaking the law. <laughs> no, no, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, well, that's like a parking meter person, I guess, too. Same kind of thing. Although they don't get paid a commission, I don't oh, think. I don't know. How I hope that works. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if I'm looking at this whole situation correctly, this four hundred dollars a year is just for for. The pride of ownership. If you had two TV sets, would it be eight hundred? No, it's by household. It's just you by household. Ten TVs, if you want. Okay, to. Yeah. so so, but you're not technically or technologically rather um, empty in the house. You've got a know. computer. You're on high speed. You're in connection with the world. We we can contact each other. Mm-hmm. You have a normal phone like the rest of us. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. The cost of long distance is next to nothing compared to what it used to be. But no TV. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they regard your computer screen as a TV? Like what? What's not cr- yet? Not yet. But it's not coming, yet. Right? Well, they, they've tried to push that in Germany. That's that's true. If you have an internet connection in Germany, you have to pay a media license. And there's talk about that in Sweden, and it's been defeated twice in the the government. But it, that's just a matter of time, of course. You see uh, things like that coming to North America. It's hard to say. There. Uh, there was, I know, at the beginning of the early days of television in Canada, there was a conscientious decision not to do that, um, for reasons that people who live near the border can get American television, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of considerations. Um, I don't. I, it's certainly not impossible. I know CBC allows advertising, so they make money on that. But you understand the Swedish state television. There's no advertising at all, so they depend on this TV license. Well, so so where so where are you now with with uh, has it all been resolved? Well, not really. What happened is the the policewoman who interrogated my wife rang her on the phone and told us that the man was looking through the wrong window. So we'll probably drop the case. But well, we that's an assurance. Isn't we it? haven't heard anything. I mean, you haven't got a letter from anyone, and uh, so it's a bit up in the air. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a possibility they might uh, hear this broadcast. Aren't you concerned that that might? <laughs> no, well, this no in <laughs> Sweden. No, this is this is a big. I mean, this is a big issue. It's very widely discussed. Most people in Sweden are not happy with this setup that they have. It's uh, I'm, I'm well, really the you know, one. I remember the day you called me. You were mm. you were extraordinarily upset because you were right in the middle of it and you yes. didn't know how it was going to resolve itself. And it obviously took over a part of your life for a brief period of time, didn't it? Well, for several weeks. I yeah. mean, the idea that you know, and, and like I said, they sent such letters that had no information. We didn't know if they're going to haul my wife off to jail or what was going to happen. She was quite prepared. Like she was quite expecting that would happen. Well, I find the whole <laughs> thing just uh, mind-boggling in a way. Mm. Um, of course, not that, you know, we live in a world where so many people are putting free material available for consumption, and uh, governments, you know, you would think wouldn't have a problem doing it either. If there was any, you know, five dedicated people in any given government, they could flood the Internet with information if it was that valuable to us, you know. But um, I guess that's the price of uh, paying... F- you say it was all uh, propaganda. It's not culturalism. You don't get a lot of... Uh, oh, it is, but it's... It, it's there. It's the social democratic 
party's idea of culture and they're not every single program's propaganda sure. but it, it has a, a, a sort of a continuous thread an ideological sort of continuum in each in each program that now if i was living it. in sweden and i mm. wanted to watch um, could i watch american television on some cable system of some uh, on sort? the private channels yes they have you that. can oh yes they have all the big hits and, and they can watch yeah. desperate housewives yes. and all that stuff desperate housewives. And are, do they come um subtitled or they're, they're subtitled they, they never dub they don't it's dub. always in the original language and then the text on the bottom mm. of the, the and, and yet they still are popular shows then even even in that format in oh Europe, yes are they? oh yeah but i wonder everyone, i wonder if everyone uh, understands english in sweden anyways i guess most people don't even bother reading the text I, I don't know that shows like that would be too popular the other way around if we were you know in, in north america expecting to subtitle everything no, and everything. Some people dubbed, don't mind it, yeah. you know, but um, yeah. I don't think that's the, the North American flavor. Yeah. Very interesting story. So I hope that works out for you. But uh, anything else you wanted to add before we left that, or is you're just sort of? Uh, no, I'm sort of happy that this is going to blow over. So at least according, <laughs> at least according to the promise. Who knows when uh, you get well, back, I'll, there'll be a piece of paper waiting in your. Uh, well, I'll certainly let you all know if, uh, okay. if that's different. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side, um, we'll be talking about uh, or introducing the whole issue of the Arab-Israeli conflict and Paul's take on it from a more of a Euro-centered point of view. Yeah, I'm comfy. Good. Oh, and by the way, Ray. Ha ha! Ha ha! By the way, huh? I knew there'd have to be a by the way in here someplace. All right, what by the way? All right, Ralph. The Nortons are getting a new television set, and I was just thinking, why don't we get one too? All right, Alice. I am now going out the door again. When I come back in, act like I wasn't in here before. And I don't want any of this. None of that. None of this stuff. I don't want to be comfy. I don't want my slippers. I don't want any lemonade. And most of all, most of all, I don't want any talk about buying a television set. Ralph, why can't we have a television set? The Norton's are on that second one. We haven't even had our first one yet. Why do you always have to be so cheap? 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 Is that why you think I won't get your set because I'm cheap? Well, that shows how much you know. All right, what is the reason? Do you want to know the reason? Yeah. You want to know the reason? Yeah. <laughs> the reason? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you the reason. I'm waiting for 3D television. That's the reason. <laughs> Number one threat, President Obama. Now, folks, we all know how he greeted Saudi King Abdullah when they met in London. The fact is, this president bowed before the Saudi king. We got this video of Barack Obama bowing to the Saudi king. Something no other uh, president has done with Saudi Arabia. Exactly. The president cannot debase himself and our country by bowing before the Saudi king. You hold his hand, kiss him on the cheek, and reorient our entire foreign policy of the last 20 years around securing his oil deposits. And as for you, King Abdullah, looking good. Keep that gas. 
under two bucks a gallon, and you can turn the Lincoln Memorial into a camel stall. I think I've made my point. We'll be right back. And we are right back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where the number is 519-661-3600 to call. If you want to join in on the conversation, I am joined in studio today by Paul Lambert, who is also going to be our Euro correspondent on the show in the future. He'll be on, I hope, at least once or twice a month, eh? Oh, certainly. Something yeah. like that. We haven't even worked all those details out yet, but... Um, Paul's visiting his hometown of London over the past couple of weeks from uh, Sweden, which is where he lives now. And um, you got interested in this issue of the whole Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Um, and you suggest that there's... And you're writing a book about it. It's in That's mid-process. Right. You've got it before an editor. I've, I've read the draft. It's just an eye-opener. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people probably are asked, scratching their heads and thinking they really don't know if they're a victim of misconceptions because, like... How would you know it, in a way? And each time you find you've been deceived by false information, you distrust future information about, exactly. about the Mideast. I've already drawn, personally, many conclusions of what I think I know. I've mentioned them on the show. But one of the frustrating elements of trying to untangle the whole Arab-Israeli conflict is the sheer volume of uh, misinformation, propaganda, and confusion. And, uh, you know, sprinkled, I think, with despair, you just want to give up on even trying to arrive at any sort of objective opinion on the subject. In fact, uh, we're not often even sure what the subject is, and that's, that's how confusing it gets. <laughs> now, you've, you've written a book, you've arrived at some conclusions that I certainly haven't heard expressed in most of the popular media, so I guess um, the first question to ask is, how, what got you interested in the issue in the first place, and um, how did, where, where did it progress from there, basically? Well, basically, it was actually an issue I once promised myself I'd never get into, I never wanted to, because I felt the same despair and misunderstanding. Mm. Uh, in university, I studied ancient history. I was a classicist, did ancient languages and uh, you know, in archaeology. And, uh, of course, in classical education, you learn about Roman history and Greek history. And as part of my, my master thesis, I added a third element of you know the, the Jewish uh, history. And so I, I was very aware of uh, that part of the world going a very, very long way back. And so I knew, even though I, at the time, at first, I wasn't so aware of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I already knew that much of the, the, the mainstream chatter about it was completely off. And still at that time, I didn't really want to get involved in the conflict itself, but it really hit home when I lived in Gothenburg in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And there was an Arab demonstration. They were handing out these flyers, you know, just anti-Semitic leaflets. And uh, one, uh, one young man tried to sh uh, really shove one into my hand. I just didn't want it. I just threw it down. I didn't want it. And so then he punched me in the face, and I fell right down on the street. And he said, and I'll say it differently, he said, watch yourself, you bloody Jew. I mean, I'm not Jewish, but... And this was right in front of the police. Uh, mm -hmm. The police were protecting the demonstration, they not people walking by so you had a yeah. you, al you already have a personal stake in this well in a sense i do yeah just in a sense a, somebody knocks you down on the street well what it did is it i, I sort of realized that it's not something i you know not get involved in but i should know about so that's when i started really cracking open the books cracking open the old newspapers really i just, just want to say what is this all about and then in the end i find it's uh it's very much different than what most people talk about today. Well, is there, is there an easy histor history lesson here available to get us started on this? 
at least uh, you said in in the introduction to your book you said there's nothing unusual here anybody can find out this information that that's right nothing that i in my book i mean perhaps that's not a good way to sell the book but, but it is but it is true it, no it, yeah, a book yeah. like that that pulls it all together and and puts a perspective well, on it is exactly what people perhaps, are looking yeah. for but i'm not into conspiracy theories i don't have an inside angle mm -hmm. everything i found could be found by anyone spending an afternoon at any public library anywhere it's a uh, the history is there, and it's, if someone really is interested and looks into it, you'll find that the truth is completely opposite to what most people are, are talking about in the mainstream media, which, which uh, the mainstream media, I have a lot of frustration with them in that regard. So, so what's yeah. the biggest myth out there? The myth is that, uh, now, maybe not everyone who's old enough in North America to understand it, but there's a general belief in Europe anyway that there was once this independent kingdom called Palestine living perfectly at peace with its neighbours and everyone else, an Arab kingdom, that suddenly after World War II they were chased out by a bunch of migrant Jews and they're now living in... Uh, you know, now the, the Palestinian people have been chased off. And that that is complete nonsense. That is a complete fabrication. There never has been an independent country called Palestine. It has never been any mention in any book I've ever found, and I welcome a challenge if someone else can find, if anyone can find a single mention of a Palestinian nation in any publication printed before 1967, I would like to see it. I would concede the entire argument if you can... It's fascinating it because, yeah. you know, even in your introduction, mm. once I read the introduction, I almost felt like I didn't have to go any further. You <laughs> asked some very obvious questions that, obvi that people don't ask themselves. Yeah, if you uh, read them up, uh, Here's a few of them. I know you don't have it in front of you, but mm. I brought it with me. Uh, when was the ancient kingdom of Palestine founded, and by whom? What were the names of some of the kings of ancient Palestine? What were its borders? What city was the capital of Palestine? What were its other major cities? What was its form of government? What was the native language of these ancient Palestinians? What was the basis of the ancient Palestinian economy? What was the name of the currency? And you talk about all sorts through history. Have the Palestinians left any historic artifacts behind? Can you find a single work of Palestinian literature produced before 1967? And then you say, please don't get too disappointed if you can't find any answers to these questions. And why is that? There are none. There are none. There are none. It just doesn't exist. It, it doesn't. It, it's a, a fabrication, it, as far as I can find. And like I said, if anyone can find, prove me wrong, I welcome a challenge. I, like I said, I, I don't have an agenda well, there's on this. nothing I, I read in find, this. I just want to find out the truth, and so far, that's... That, that's a real stumbling block when you first approach this issue. <laughs> you cannot find any historical evidence of this, this phantom nation. Now, why does such a phantom nation exist then? If it's not real, what is it? It exists to torment the Jews, as far as I can see. And, and also, you know, the people who we call Palestinians, they, they are victims too. But they are victims of the neighboring Arab countries that wouldn't take them in. Mm -hmm. You understand... Uh, just getting up to modern history, as soon as the state of Israel was declared in 1948, the five Arab countries around them declared war and de determined to destroy Israel. Mm -hmm. And what they told the, the local Arab people was, just get out of our way, we'll destroy Israel, and then we can all have it together. But then, of course, the war turned out differently. And the Arab countries made no contingency or no concession for the Arab refugees that would come out of this war. They didn't erect a single tent city. They did nothing for these people who are now stuck. And now what happens is these people who live in, in squalor, they don't live as, bad as, as badly as people think, but they do live in a certain squalor, and that's because the Arab countries won't take them in. 
In the Gaza Strip before mm -hmm. 1967, when Israel took over, the Arabs living in Gaza were not allowed to work for money. They could not take employment against payment of money, and they could not come into Egypt, although Egypt created this whole problem. Who, they still who, who put that prohibition on them? That was the Egyptians. It was under Egyptian rule until 1967 that, that the Arabs who got stuck in the, the Gaza rectangle, the mm -hmm. Gaza Strip, they were not allowed to work for money. They became the world's largest dole case. They were, they were getting money from the UN just simply to be alive. And the Egyptians didn't allow them to get work permits, come into Egypt. What was to, their motivation for doing that? Because it would fester and become an excuse to, you know, to, to fight, fight the Israelis again. It was so it wasn't, wasn't an internal concern of the Egyptians, it was an external offensive oh yeah, action oh yes. on their part. You're saying uh, that was done consciously. As far as I can see, if someone else has a better explanation, <laughs> yeah, let me know. <laughs> there, you, you mentioned a very interesting uh, dichotomy, I guess you could call it. Um, I don't have this section in front of me right now, but you mentioned how the, um, the Holocaust was probably the only time ever in history that the world was on the side of the Jews. That's right. And since then and before then, no issue, quote, unites the world so much as its nearly universal condemnation of the state of in Israel and by extension, Jews. But, yeah. uh, isn't that an interesting dichotomy? You know, you, here you have um, almost an extreme in Germany. You can't deny the Holocaust without being criminally uh, charged, which I think is ridiculous. I think you c people deny reality all the time and nobody <laughs> exactly. puts them in jail. And uh, on the other hand, this hatred of, of the Jews going on right in the midst of it. It seems like the ultimate hypocrisy. Well, I'll give you just my reflection on that, and not everyone's going to share this opinion, but there must be dozens of border disputes in the world. Um, even within the Arab world, the line between Yemen and Saudi Arabia is one, uh, Algeria and Morocco is another, but no issue unites the world so much than the idea that the Jews have no right to live in Judea. You know, and I see in this not absolute proof, but an indication that indeed this is the holy land of the whole world. You know, the, the Greeks had Mount Olympus, it was holy to the Greeks, mm -hmm. and other religions had their holy sites, but the whole world is absolutely obsessed with this tiny portion of the population. The Jews comprise one quarter of a quarter of one percent of the world's population. It is one third of the agenda at the UN. It is one half of the budget of projects of the UN. It's, it's an obsession that this world has. And so that's the thing. I'm, I see it the other way. People say, why are you so interested in the Jews? I think it's the other way. When I see a Jew, I see a fellow human being. Mm -hmm. It seems like the rest of the world doesn't want to look at it that way. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And that's been my basic interpretation of things as I've seen them. Uh, we're going to have to take a break now, Paul. We're at the bottom sure. of the hour already. But what we're about to hear is another debate on the subject taken from um, the Michael Corrin show about uh, ooh, a year and a half ago at the time when a fellow named Sid Ryan, who uh, has, now, has now been promoted to um, the head of the Ontario Federal Federation of Labour, but was at that time, of course, well, you'll hear the introduction, he was the head of CUPE. Uh, and, of course, CUPE has repeatedly had various sanctions drawn against the state of Israel. Don't trade, don't do this. <laughs> In this particular case, I think they were talking about um, boycotting professors from Israel. And um, so we'll listen in on this conversation, both on this side of the break and on the other. And when we come back, we'll hear what you have to say about what you heard. Okay? Thank you. Terrific. Uh, we, we chatted on the phone, Sid. I mean, obviously, the, the, the context here is your president of QP Ontario and some uh, comments uh, that were made about Gaza. And we chatted on the phone. And uh, I've known you 
well for 10 years now. You, you wanted to, uh, to, to clarify some statements, and I'm, I'm handing the show over to you, effectively. Oh, okay, good. Thank you. Um, right, so, so I mean, there's a, there's a few issues we've got to get into. Sure. But, um, so let's just talk about the context of why it is that QP is involved in this dispute to begin with. Um, you know, clearly there's a humanitarian crisis taking place in Gaza. And as every day goes by, there's a new atrocity which just horrifies people around the world whether it be bombing of hospitals, bombing of universities, um, civilians being killed indiscriminately, uh, children, emaciated children, uh, finding, you know, days and days and days with their parents buried under rubble uh, who are dead, and uh, on and on it goes, right? So at some point we're saying, um, like, where are, where are the voices around the world and where are the voices inside of our own country um, that are speaking out against these kinds of atrocities? So from the federal government, we basically get, um, you know, the usual line, this was all brought about by, as a result of Hamas. They're the ones that to blame. Um, so leaving aside whether Hamas is to blame or not to blame, um, you still have let, you're left with a humanitarian crisis. President of QP Ontario, and out in uh, in sunny Calgary, Rick Bell, economist with um, with the, with the Calgary Sun. Rick, let, let's go straight to you here. Here's the concern some people have when it comes to the, the university approach. They will say, in Israel, you have um, many universities, and there is no discrimination. E even, I mean, there's a, a, a specifically a religious university where there is none, but Haifa and, and Ben Gurion University and Hebrew University, lots of Arabs, Haifa University in particular, 35, 40% Israeli Arab, Palestinian studying there, and they're given full freedom. Iran, for example, you have university students um, attacked on the street by the police, you have newspapers closed down, uh, you have gay, young gay men hanged in public, you have uh, women stoned to death, there was a, a feminist leader who was held for 23 hours a day in a coffin, for goodness sake. Um, I think we'd all agree that's an awful regime. Yet, I saw a protest against Israel outside the consulate with Iranian flags being flown and no one has said Iranian academics, nor should they be, I believe, uh, should be asked, do you condemn the Tehran government's actions? This seems to be a double standard. And, and I was about to use the word double standard, and that's why, you know, when listening to Sid, I, it goes through my mind, what exactly would be the standard, the threshold by which he and his union would condemn these activities in other countries? With Israel, there is one threshold, and I'm not even aware of what the other threshold would possibly be, because you've already enunciated many of the horrors, and there is no response. There is silence, which I gather means uh, agreement. Well, so I, I'm very, very interested to see what exactly is, what is it, what is it, this, where's the threshold where you will speak out, okay. since you want to speak out about international regimes instead of discussing okay. the Canadian economy, so, which affects your workers. No, no, I mean, you've been on for many, many minutes going on and on and on, but yet, you, yet you're not telling us exactly what threshold these countries have to commit injustice before you will pledge right now on the Michael Corrin Show that your union will condemn it and suggest a certain punitive action. So please, on the Michael Corrin Show, tell Canada when that will, when, what is the threshold where you will do that? Okay. You're just, you know, to, look, so, so, no, his question okay. though, because he's talking about threshold. I mean, their threshold is one of human rights. And um, just very recently, as a matter of fact, from a human rights perspective, um, I criticized Iran, roundly and soundly criticized, and Egypt. Boycott, um, did you boycott? Did no, you Michael, boycott? hang on a second. I 
criticized Iran um, for their, their kidnapping of some trade union leaders, for example. And likewise, there's some beating of, of uh, other um, academics and uh, trade union leaders in Egypt, which we roundly condemned. Now, do we put boycotts in, in every single up place? No, you don't. Um, the issue of a boycott, just Michael, Israel. is very... No, it's not. It is, it is, exactly. it is used surprise, very, surprise. very, very... Just Israel. Okay, if you want to keep shouting Ooh, at me, right. then we're not going to have a debate here. Look. You do condemn other regimes, I've heard you, but there seems to be a special contempt and a special treatment for one particular regime, Absolutely. which, whatever you think of it, is, is, is far better than most of those who are not boycotted. The issue is consistency. Now, I wouldn't agree exactly. with you, but if you said there's a boycott of, and you listed 15 countries, and the academics from all of these countries will be questioned, at least mm. there was consistency. No, but there's but one Michael, that you say... No, 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 there's one thing about boycotts, is that they do not work. If you put a boycott mm. every time you've got a complaint against the, an organization or a company, mm. they're done on, on very, very extreme circumstances. Yeah, I mean, point, stick it right now. Okay. What's Just going on between and there the conversation drifts into the confusion <laughs> that we normally hear. Welcome <laughs> back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. I should note, Paul, oh, by the way, I'm joined in studio by Paul Lambert, who is, uh, write, has written a book a draft in draft stage yet on the whole, um, I guess, the whole situation in Gaza and who also will be our Euro correspondent for the show on future shows. Now, I should comment that when I edited the excerpt that you just heard, I eliminated uh, the vast majority of Ryan's distractions. I've got to tell you, I, it just, he'd go off on this tangent and that, and you know, I had to edit it very tightly to keep to the core of the conversations. And I think it made him seem far more uh, reasonable than he actually was when on, on the <laughs> show. But, you know, Michael Corrin also suggested the issue is consistency. Well, if that's the issue, then I have to say QP Ontario has consistently boy you know, proposed boycotts against Israel in some way, shape, or form, almost on an annual basis. And here, here we have Ryan saying boycotts don't work except in extreme circumstances and he decides of all the countries yes. in the world Israel is the extreme circumstance what's what, what, did, you, what did you make of all that, that well, you just I, heard actually I, I saw the original in its full and um, Sid I should point out Sid Ryan is known both in Israel and in Europe now not oh, is that right not so much for his trade union activity but for this very rant and for his continuing uh, which many people see is clearly anti-semitic uh, no, an anti-Semitic so enterprise. So, so this he's, guy's name is known oh, in Europe, but not as a labor yeah. leader as such. No, well, he, he's, he's known as a labor leader, mm -hmm. but they don't know what he's done as a labor ah. leader, perhaps, but they know that he is very anti-Israel. Well, the world's getting yeah, smaller. Well, what, what, I want, what I want to know, and many other people have asked in, in Israel as well, have said, like, you know, he's a labor leader. What does all this have to do with the interests of the workers, the members of his labor union? It, Absolutely nothing. You know, I've never been hot on unions. Well, well, to start with, well that's ironic because mm. I've you know I've done many mm. shows on labor unions, and one of my biggest beefs with the labor union is that they're they're less about labor and more about politicking, yeah. and they get involved in issues of taxation, government spending, foreign relations, and things like like what we're seeing here, and uh, that seems to be a primary function of the labor union, and most of the things that they advocate are things that hurt their members, which well, is, which is so the irony of it. But that's a whole other show. Yeah, I understand but what you but mean. But there, there were two takes I'd like to take on, on, on yes. Sid Ryan there. And, and in fairness to Mr. Ryan, it, it's not at all unique to him. It's very typical that these kind of tirades, they focus on two things. First, their evaluation of the conflict always starts at Chapter 2. They never bring up 
the violence that the Arabs have initiated. It's always a protest against the Israeli response. And you can even see this... You know what? You should uh, start your book with a chapter two and don't put a chapter one. <laughs> I have, have people oh, no, I'm not going to imitate no, the evils no, of the okay. enemy. That's <laughs> just my marketing mind at work. But you even see that whenever there were uh, protests in the streets of Gothenburg, there, there were never big street protests. There were never any protests at all after some terrible terrorist incident, but always a huge protest involving thousands of demonstrators whenever there was an Israeli response of any kind. The second thing, which is very typical of, you know, of the, the pro-Arab sentiment, is projection, quite simply of accusing your victims of your own crimes, without, you know, without even trying to uh, concoct some new evidence or argument, simply like, uh, oh, they do terrible... Uh, you know, mm. you know, you can point to the Arabs and they say, like, that was a terrible atrocity, murdering those people. No, 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 no. It was the Jews who did terrible things to us. And that's it. And that's what we heard of Sid well, Ryan. That's what we hear yeah. all the time. It's yes. just like a he said, she said argument. Well, it is, but it's, it's, not, e yeah, but it's not even that. It, it's, projection is very much part of the whole dynamic in, in this argument, simply accusing the opposite side of one's own evils. Now, you describe projection very interestingly in one of your passages here. I don't know if I can find it, though, because... Uh, oh, here, I found it right off oh, the good. bat. Yeah. Um, you would describe it as a psychological self-defense. It entails accusing one's victims of one's own crimes or wrongdoings. Projection shows a certain level of awareness on the part of the projector, projector of the evil of his actions, since if he did not understand the evil of his deeds, he would not be so quick to accuse his victims. Yes, he wouldn't feel the need and to. <laughs> that happens on a personal level, too, not just on, a, on an international or collective level, oh, projection, the whole thing. Um, you find that often in marriages that split up. You know, one spouse is leaving the other and accuses the other of all the things they're oh, doing. Kind well, of we, thing. we see this all the time, Bob. And it, yes. And so, it, what are, what are you've got a few? What are the major misconceptions? You've got, you picked a few articles that I, I brought in a file folder there that that we would have just read in our papers recently. Well, sure. Well, yeah, I'll or, start with these. Um, there was a few I picked out. One is from the National Post. It was on April 28th this year, and it's just it's just the caption that really stood out. Uh -huh. And uh, this is a bit Orwellian. And the caption simply reads that uh, you know it's a picture of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There's Mahmoud Abbas, known by also Abu Mazen. That was his street gang name. Oh, you pronounce and, those names so well. Oh, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Barack Obama. And there's a big handshake. It looks like a rather plain picture. And it just says, yeah, from left, Israeli Prime Minister, American President, and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Now, my question is, when did he become a president? Yeah. When, when, you see, when did the, that wait, happen? Well, no, the, he never did. Well. And this is the Orwellian thing. The, the Oslo Accord, which was signed in 1993, created something called the Palestinian Authority. It was a, a non-territorial authority to represent the interests of the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria and Gaza. He was, the first one was Yasser Arafat. He was the chairman of the Palestinian Authority. And after he died and uh, Mahmoud Abbas eventually took over and there, there was these, these elections and other things, he became chairman of the Palestinian Authority. But now over time, it's just been repeated over and over, president of Palestine, president of Palestine. There was never any official event mm -hmm. that created a state of Palestine or created the office of president. But now it's just been repeated over and over again, and the old newspapers are down the Orwellian memory hole, and now he's a president, and no one knows when, and no one knows why. It's, it's interesting yeah. that in this day and age of the internet and, and everything being online, and you can look up the history, you can't hide it anymore like That's you used right. to be able to, that there's still 
still doing these kind of tactics? I think it's intellectual laziness well, and, uh, on, on, okay. the the, on the part of the on the part of the, the media ju- too. Yeah. Well, well, especially the media. Now, now, the general public they can care or not care, but the media has a very important job, and I think they're failing in their task to just be intellectually honest and. You see, the, the media, Can we expect yeah. that of a media that no. is largely politically oriented in itself? I often joke about uh, other radio stations and, and very, various media outlets as being, uh, well, why, you know, people say, why didn't I hear the news there? I say, well, they're paid not to tell you. Well, there's a lot <laughs> because, of truth in that. Be, because, you know, there's interest behind every organization. Yes, but it may even be more mundane than that. See, journalism, they're in for the big scoop. That's mm-hmm. what they want. They don't know and they don't care about the history behind the scoop. And that, that's sort of where I'm trying to come in with this mm-hmm. That uh, you know, at the end of the show, listeners might still disagree with me, but I'm hoping to give them a way to look at the right information, make a decision. And just going to the recent newspapers isn't going to help. Um, if I want to go on to the next one, yeah, here, there was a we'll do one more before we take a quick yeah, break. Yeah, sure. It, it's, it's a bit of an aside. This is from the London Free Press, the 17th of April. Um, Holocaust denier fined, and I know about this story. This is about uh, the English uh, bishop Richard Williamson, who, who was a Holocaust denier. And these fools abound. You know, we've had Zundel, we had David Irving and that. And what I want to know is why why are we so obsessed with Holocaust deniers in our own area when we're trying to bolster someone like Mahmoud Abbas who has a PhD from Moscow University. In Holocaust uh, denial. Yes, he, yes, <laughs> he wrote a 200-page thesis proving that the Holocaust did not exist. We're trying to bolster one Holocaust denier while we're taking these little fools and giving them a hard legal time. I, I say let the world hear the, them for the fools they are. And, you know, it's, well, I'll tell you, there's, there's no possibility of addressing all the issues in, in the short time we have left. Mm. going to take a quick break and come back with... Um, You'll hear a little bit more of from the Corrin show on the other side of the sure. bumper where they're trying to address some possible solutions to the issue of the Arab-Israeli conflict, and um, they're very different from what you might suggest. So we'll be back right after this break. Thank you. I thought I would come in a kind of national costume. This is um, a little outfit. This is a memento from the Iran-Iraq chemical warfare from... Uh... <laughs> Please keep the laughter coming. It helps with my asylum application that's going through. <laughs> now, I'm here. Uh, I'm a bit different here. I was come, uh, the United Nations Security Council asked me here on a comedy cultural exchange program. Uh, What's well, true? Tonight I am here. Carrot Top is doing Kabul. He's doing very well. He's doing very well. He was executed after five minutes, I'm sorry to say. Official reason, props and ginger hair, too irritating. But, um, <laughs> any Iranians here? What I'm hearing is a muffled sound. Uh... The reading of this, let's go to some of the causes here, and it's a very complex situation because um, the reality is you have two suffering peoples. Anyone who thinks Palestinians are living a great life is that nonsense. Even the West Bank, we don't talk about much these days. Uh, conditions are very difficult and there have to be radical changes there. But anyone reading the history knows that when Israel took Gaza, this is not propaganda, this is history, they offered it back to Egypt. 
Now, they, they, they offered everything back apart from Jerusalem. They never offered East Jerusalem back to, to Jordan. But they offered the rest of the West Bank and Gaza to the countries they'd taken them from in, in that war. And Egypt said, no, we don't want Gaza. You keep Gaza, for goodness sake. It's full of Palestinians. Since then, there have been all sorts of events, and the idea that Israel is always clean is not true at all. They, they care about their security way more than they do about the Palestinians. Fully understandable, but it's also reality. But to say this is absolutely wrong, both in extent and in initiative by Israel, after the rockets and, and the suicide attempts and so on, I'm not sure what else they could have done at this stage. Do you have any solutions? No, I mean, I, th I think... I think the I think they had to go in. What, what, what else could they have done? What, what is the other solution? Again, uh, since Sid is advocating the Hamas position, no matter what he says, and still hasn't answered the question of well, what kind of a threshold these other unjust countries have to meet, uh, I'm really wondering uh, what suggestion he would have. Should the Israelis just allow Hamas to do what they want? Do, should they have wonderful, nice Sesame Street discussions with Hamas? Who doesn't even want them to exist? Hey, Rick. I mean, I don't know what this other wonderful Pollyanna solution is to the Middle East conflict, except for Israel rolling over, which obviously is not going to happen. So, Rick, and that's, never that's going an interesting question. You're asked a direct question for some input into this debate that we're having. You've got no answer. You've got nothing to say. Uh, you tried to turn the question around and put it back into me. So why don't you try maybe and answer the question? You come on the show. You want to share your opinions. Uh, you're I'm a, you're, saying you're if I was the Israelis, right I would have... Hang on a second. If I was the Israelis, Stop shouting at me. I, would have, I would have gone there's, into there's no Gaza. Need, there's no need to shout at me. Just, you were asked a question. You wanted to come on the show, and, and you're I representing did. Calgary Sun. So let's I, hear I, your opinion. Yeah, let's, I, and I... Let me throw a solution. Claire offers. Let me off. There's an example of projection. We got a call off the air just during the break there someone wanted uh, to a listener wanted us to address the issue of i guess proportional retaliation or asymmetrical retaliation when apparently israel you know they have more firepower than often the groups that are attacking them is i, th I think that's what's meant by that would you say yeah, well, that's that's a common and it's a fair question because mm -hmm. it's a very common common point and my answer is two points to it and, and not everyone's going to be happy with this answer mm -hmm. in a war victory entails overwhelming your enemy to the point where he stops his violence and ends the war in victory. And this is a war, this is an Arab-Israeli conflict, the terrorists are proxy armies of other Arab countries, and to end this war, you have to fight back. Now, this idea that it has to be just sort of tit-for-tat is you know, that that will never end the conflict. Now, on the practical level of this particular conflict, it's not, I don't think it's fair to say it's unproportional maybe in the actual material that's being used, the actual weaponry, the technology, but for the people on the ground, it's not unproportional. The people who in Sterot, in Ashkelon, who have rockets fired at them over and over and over again at random targets, that's what the Arabs do. The Israelis target particular bad guys, mm -hmm. particular installations, and there's collateral damage. There's a difference between targeting civilians, quasi-civilians, and civilians who are being hurt on the side. And that's what the, Ar the Arabs do. They practice random killings, and, but when Israel practices a targeted killing, the whole world screams, war crime. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think uh, the world yeah. sees Israel as the one with the upper hand in that particular single isolated incident, you know, and then they, that, they judge on that. We've only mm -hmm. got a few minutes yeah, left, sure. so let's, let's what, what, you know, you, you basically say if, 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 if by solution to the whole issue, um, 
we mean that we have to find a way in which the Arabs and Jews are going to live side by side in peace and harmony, you say there's no such no, solution. No. It won't ever happen. No, never. Tell us why. Because the, this is a religious conflict, as much as the people involved don't want to admit it, even official Israel doesn't want to admit this is a religious conflict. And in Islam, and I don't want the all police calling, yes, not all Muslims feel this way, but they are constitutionally incapable of living with Jews as equals, and they're religiously forbidden from allowing the Jews to live in an independent state of any size. When you say constitutionally forbidden, that means... I mean, in their, their personal psyche, oh, that mm -hmm. uh, as, you know, the Arabs as, again, not every Arab, but as a corporate body, they just cannot live with Jews being free right next to them. It's very disconfirming because, you know, hmm. Muhammad was the last and the greatest no, no, with, of the prophets. And, yeah, yeah, without expanding <laughs> yeah, too sorry. much, are there any quick points that you would raise just in terms of what you think should well, be a I solution? Think, yeah, a solution, when we, talk about, well, when we talk to solution, we're talking about Jews not getting killed anymore. Okay. There'll be no deal, no solution can involve the Arabs in, in the decision-making process. Now, that's alarming to a lot of people, that yeah. you would say that. that well, especially in Canada, you have this common ground idea. No matter how far apart people are, you want to find f common ground. No, we're looking for a solution where people aren't getting killed. And uh, Now, Michael uh, Corrin was uh, suggesting a two-state solution was the answer with possibly a, th a neutral third party uh, like Turkey arbitrating. Oh, no, well, he, he's making the same mistakes. That that's the same parrot call. That, and yet he was fairly accurate. I noticed you kind it, of agreed it, it, with in his, the facts, his yes, concepts in of his the history. facts and his evaluation. But it seems also to Alan Dershowitz, another writer, sort of on my side, also comes to the same conclusion. We need a two-state solution. Any solution that's going to involve the continued existence of any kind of independent state of Israel will be too much, uh, too high a price for the Arabs to pay and just will not work. You might create this new cozy little state of Palestine, and the new terrorist attacks will come from the state of Palestine into what's left of Israel. Th this is what I fear. I don't know why anyone thinks creating another state is, is a solution to anything, since, since states are centers of force. They right. basically can collect arms as a legal right. That's what makes you a state. Well, think of it morally. Israel, for all its faults, is what we'd call a free country. Why would you carve out such a an area out of a free country to create a terrorist dictatorship. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, any other major points we got about, oh, <laughs> trying to solve the world's problems in well, two I'll minutes Well, I'll say, yeah. Here. I mean, of course I wrote a lot. We won't get to all. A big we, can, part of we can pick up on this okay, on future sure, shows because sure. you're, you're going to be our correspondent. We'll just pick up. <laughs> a big part of this is official Israel that has accepted the Palestinian narrative by and large. They accept the idea. They won't stand up for their rights as the Jewish people have a right to live in Judea. They simply say, oh, it's a security matter. We can't leave Judea and Samaria. You're saying they, they're yeah. a bit of victims of their own They're victims of their own philosophy. Remember, the, the founders of the State of Israel, they were socialists and atheists and just cannot appreciate that this is a religious conflict. And even if you're not religious yourself, if you don't accept that this is a religious conflict, you're not going to understand it. This is not a complicated issue. It's only complicated when you try to make a bunch of falsehoods fit together. Then or or if you try to make what seems irrational, rational. Exactly. Because everyone assumes that, well, the violence has to be there for a reason. There must be an economic reason. There must be some that, that political was the, reason. That there was must the mistake. Be, yeah. Yeah. That was the mistake of official Israel. They said, well, we'll just give the Arabs a whole bunch of nice things, nice houses, nice roads, nice schools, and they'll stop hating us. And that just didn't happen, <laughs> and it's not going to. This is a religious mm -hmm. conflict, and official Israel has to understand that. 
Uh, okay, so that's the biggie. And then, so what would happen if you don't have the Arabs in as part of the solution? If What do you do? You can't ignore them. No, but you understand, when Greece and Turkey split, there was a population exchange, and that process actually won a Nobel Peace Prize. That was, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Pakistan and India split. That was a religious conflict, and except for in Kashmir, where it wasn't split quite right, that, that's been rather stable. Um, when Israel was founded, all the Arab countries except Morocco kicked out their native Jewish population in retaliation. But I don't think that it has to be seen as a negative thing. The Jews can come to Israel, the Arabs can go to the Arab states. It might be a long process. You don't have to hurt any Arabs, you don't have to hurt any Jews. Just understand that they can't live together they can live in their own countries, and other Arab countries are 25 miles away. They speak the same language, same religion, same customs, no st- new strange foods to earn, and that would solve the problem to a great extent. I mean, I don't know if that's the only solution. Well, of course, but, h- yeah. how would it ever eliminate that hatred? That, oh, that it wouldn't. Oh, no. So, no, no, like I said, the solution is for the Jews to stop getting murdered by Arabs. Yeah. And, and, so and that, the that conflict. may end they up being be military at some point. Won't oh, oh, maybe, but yeah, I, I think the best, most humane way is to implement a gradual population exchange over time. Well, we'll have to wait and see how that all works out. Paul, thank you so much for for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing from you again on future shows when Robert and I are back together, and we'll be talking to you uh, from Sweden. And I guess that's it for today's show, so I guess we've got to wrap up and get out of here. And Folks, you know what to do. Join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, act right, and be right here next week. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I'm, I'm trying to change this whole, I've been doing lots of anti-racism comedy workshops And uh, the ethnic minorities uh, sharing their culture We have me, we have an uh, Iranian comic We have a uh, Korean juggler We have this uh, Indian bingo caller Which is uh, fantastic <laughs> You have that click the click His guy goes, okay, everyone, get your cards ready, and here we go. Kebab, well done, number one. Hot, hot, vindaloo, 22. Chutney, writer, papadom, none. Who's at the door? 44. Is it? <laughs> I do impressions as well. Okay, this is my impression of Godzilla having his toe stepped on. You're a tough crowd, I tell you that much.